Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi there, I'm Chris Steyerwalt. And I'm Aliana Johnson. Heck yeah. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Oh yeah. You feeling it? I'm feeling it. I have tried to, I'm trying to bring Gwyneth Paltrow chic to the serial the podcast ki- The studio. serial killer chic? No, I've been so, I've been with loving all, all glasses. of her courtroom outfits and I read that the key is a Colin's telling me oh closer to my mouth okay I read that the secret to succession chic and Gwyneth Paltrow chic is a monotone outfit like you wear kind of all the same color palette okay so I'm trying to wear all today it's creams I think it's great. I, on the other hand, am trying to look like a 1940s newspaper editor, apparently, today. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you see, we got to get the guys down at the courthouse. See, yeah. the verdict's <laughs> coming in. See? So that's what I'm working on today. Uh, yeah. Also, not having my pants fall Citiz- down. Citizen Kane. Yes, that's right. Well, we have so much to talk about because we have not been together for three weeks, right? Is that two weeks off? Yeah, well, we had the great Sean McCreech interview. And the great John Pitorek. We had J Pod come in to talk about babysitting, among other things, talk about babysitting Gwyneth Paltrow, who was probably dressed in neutral creams. She was probably had a very creamy palette on. No doubt. um, Even as a baby. I like to think of myself (laughs) as having a creamy palette. But it, it was a good show, but you were missed, and I'm glad you're back, and I'm glad you came back just in time for my least favorite season. Well, my one of my most favorite seasons in DC. And the least favorite season, which is when you get to watch the children on spring break who have been dragged here by their schools and parents to look at buildings while it's cold outside and the traffic is snarled and the cherry blossoms are blossomed. You came back to D.C. We, we both have returned to D.C. at the right time. I haven't seen any of those groups. They're out there. They're there and they're wearing ugly sweatshirts and looking at their guardians and chaperones with the kind of dead-eyed hatred that only a seventh grader on a field trip can muster. I was once one of those groups, so. And that look at look at how it turned out for yeah. you. Look at how it turned out for you. Okay, we have so much to talk about. We're going to be like machine gun rapid fire today, but let's hit it right off the top. On our front page, we have the Russian Security Service detaining Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gerskovich. And we are recording on Thursday, and this was published just this morning. This news came out where the FSB said in a statement that Mr. Gerskovich, quote, acting on the instructions of the American side, collected information constituting a state secret about the activities of one of the enterprises of the Russian military industrial complex. This is interesting because it comes not long after this prisoner trade where we got the WNBA player Brittany Griner back for this Russian arms dealer, Victor Boot or Bout. I don't know how you pronounce his name, but obviously bogus. Even this guy, Evan Griskovich, was there sanctioned to be a reporter even by the the Russians. And was was apparently reporting on 
Wagner or Wagner, I don't know how it's pronounced, but the Russian mercenary company, security company, that is, and he was reporting on the conscription and the sort of dragooning that Wagner was doing in eastern Russia to keep the war effort in Ukraine alive for the faltering Russian forces. And, you know, out of everything that's going on from a geopolitical standpoint, the possibility, you know, the, Wagner represents a credible threat, right? This is a, you can see the, the way that a story ends in Russia with these very scary kind of people, you know, people say it couldn't get worse than Putin. It can get worse than Putin. And Gershkovich was doing the right kind of reporting, doing the, doing that work. And so they've, as of this recording, have taken him prisoner. And this will pose substantial, substantial complications for the war effort, for all of this stuff. And certainly my thoughts and prayers are with his family at home, for his colleagues, and by the way, for Americans who continue to report inside an increasingly authoritarian and an increasingly un- unraveled Russia. I also think it's interesting, the, the Bout-Griner prisoner trade was not a trade of equals. Like Bout was a, a prisoner of enormous geopolitical yeah. significance, and I do think it goes to show that, like, we're not getting concessions from the Russians for that. They're continuing to, we are an enemy to them and they are treating us that way. And this is an act of aggression. Totally. And we should be, we are reminded that the story for American journalists is different than other journalists around the world. People think twice about detaining an American journalist. We can still remember the name of Daniel Pearl. We can still remember instance where American journalists were taken captive. But for a lot of journalists who don't have the support of the most powerful nation in the world, it's it's a very different story out there. So, Well, Putin does not seeming too nervous about it right now. This, this is going to be a thing. Gonna we'll follow thing. how the Biden administration handles this. On to a, a less serious subject, we learn, per the Wall Street Journal... That CNN is finalizing a deal to add Gail King to its primetime lineup once a week for an hour, which is atypical. They're not getting her every night because she is with CBS as it hits lowest ratings in decades. And the journal writes, Ms. King, 68 years old, is expected to begin hosting a once a week show this fall while continuing her duties at CBS. CNN is also in conversation with former NBA player Charles Barkley about potentially joining a show with Ms. King, they said. Both of them? Both of them. Both of them. Wow. That would be... That's a, that'd be first. What, what, I know, are, what are your thoughts? Well, I know you're pleased about the possibility of more Charles Barkley. I on love television. Charles Barkley. Yes, I, it, Charles Barkley with Shaq is better than Charles Barkley without Shaq. I, I love Shaq too. Gotta love Shaq. Shaq food to return. He has the best bit. Colin will tell us if we can actually play this. He has the best little bit about how you know a lot of these NBA players they go and all of a sudden they have you know seven figure salaries. They might be low seven figure salaries, but nonetheless. They're young kids, and all of a sudden they're making a lot of money, and they lose it all, or they spend it all. And he talks about hiring. He says, like, he got, he tried to, a lot of people tried to sell him on doing stupid things with this money, and he says he hired this little Jewish money manager. And the guy's, like, still managing his money, and the story he tells about it is freaking hilarious. So many good Shaq stories. Let's see if we can put that clip in. And I can remember old-timers saying, if it's too good to be true, don't do it. 
So a lot of guys came in, yeah, uh, they say you're going to get 40 million on your first contract. You give me the 40 million, I can turn it into 200 million. By the time you're 23, I was like, I don't like this guy. Another guy said the same thing. And then I met one little small, beautiful Jewish man who says, I'm in the savings bonds. You know, we're going to put your money and, you know, we're going to start a subchapter S corporation from your family. So, you know, all the stuff that you're doing, you can write it off. I was like, you know what? Shalom. Barak Hashem. I'm going with you, sir. So many good Shaq stories. I think one of the changes that you're seeing in cable news. So if you, we think back to the time when Fox couldn't hold on to Megyn Kelly and she went to NBC and the question about getting high, high visibility, high dollar talent on cable news. What does cable news want? Five nights a week, right? It's hard to get somebody to commit. There's a serious quality of life thing about doing a TV show five nights a week. It is a huge disruption as opposed to one night a week, which is much more doable. And I think cable news would be wise. I understand the reasons for wanting habituation and night after night after night after night. But I think there's also something to be said for a little more variation and getting more interesting talent and putting it on. So I'd be curious to see how that goes. I'm sort of skeptical. I think that Chris Licht, as president of CNN, he's desperate. Like, he's got to get some big names in there. Yeah. From a ratings perspective, I, how significant can this possibly be? Adding people, adding somebody one night a week. I feel like they, I mean, if, what do I know? But If you can get a tent pole, if you could have one night a week okay. that was Fair really enough. rated and you get, get people to tune in, if you could keep just some of them, and that's the thinking, if you could get a big night and you could get viewership. You could start to build around that a little bit. And I don't know. I, look. they But they got to get Barkley. I they got to Bar get Barkley. Bar Barkley would be a, a huge addition. Yeah. Well, speaking of CNN. This. Uh, th this deal's not over the finish line, but CNN crew robbed in San Francisco while reporting on the rampant crime that has plagued the city. That is like right out of succession or something like that. It is really something. And so this is according to Moshe, Moshe, who I can't ever remember his last name, but I worked with him at Fox. He's great and has should be followed on Instagram. But a CNN crew was robbed in San Francisco while reporting on the rampant crime that has plagued the city. CNN correspondent Kyung La took to Twitter. She didn't really take to Twitter. We talked about that with Sean McCreesh. Didn't really take to Twitter, but she posted on Twitter and detailed how their rental car was vandalized, even with a security detail, as she was conducting an interview at City Hall. Take a look at her thread above. It's it's something, something pretty wild and maybe tells more of the story about what's going on in San Francisco than any, than any report could have. What do we got next here? Oh, well, the New York Times Guild says you can't make us go to work. Oh, I guess I love this. And you put this in here, the Commentary Magazine article by our friend Christine Rosen. Well, before you get to that. Oh, what did I skip? Oh, the tweet. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Walk us through. So the we've covered here and talked here about the ongoing labor strife at the New York Times between the Time, the Times Guild, the reporters at the Times. And yeah, this tweet's amazing. Here's their demand. After three years of thriving with hybrid work. We cannot in good faith agree to a contract that would give the New York Times the unilateral right to call us into the office five days a week, the company's current position. 865 New York Times Guild members delivered this petition to management today. How dare these people think that they could demand that the people who work for them come to work? How, 
How dare they? The unilateral right. Just the unilateral right to say to people who work for you that you have to come into the office. Who do these people think they are? Goodness gracious. So that'll give you an idea of how management labor negotiations are going at the times if we're at the point of you don't have the right to make us come to work. Woof. And our friend Christine Rosen at Commentary and the American Enterprise Institute has a piece about this brouhaha over trans coverage at Mm -hmm. the New York Times. And she, for we've talked about it here before, but essentially several New York Times reporters and employees signed a petition from, or a letter from trans activists to the New York Times complaining about their coverage that examined controversy around hormone treatment for young people, for transgender accidentally people. Mi- they accidentally misgendered a person oh, yeah. and didn't correct it. It took them hours to correct it during a breaking news the gall. situation. Yeah, yeah, the gall. And, New- and the New York Times did the correct thing. After it came out, they sent out a memo that said, hey, you work here. Don't sign letters attacking the institution if you work here. If you don't want to work here, don't work here. If you do want to work here, bring your complaints to us internally. Don't sign on to letters attacking us from the outside. And the New York Times, by the way, is not anti-trans. There's not like, if the New York Times is anti-trans, everybody's, there, then there's so no such thing. The the Times employees who were upset about this did not like the Times' response. And Christine notes, she says, the problem, as the backlash reveals, is that many reporters don't believe there are there is a legitimate opposing view about transgender quote-unquote rights. The only appropriate view is to defend and amplify, amplify radical gender ideology and to do so by engaging in something that no self-respecting journalist should support, censorship of opposing views. I think that's totally true, and we see that in newsrooms everywhere. We talked about Politico's guide to yes. writing about trans issues where they said that the use of neutral language is itself taking a side. Yes. And I think we're seeing that in newsrooms all across the country. And the way that Christine characterized the views of these Times reporters is to illegitimize one side of this conversation. As one anonymous Times staffer griped to Charlotte Klein at Vanity Fair, quote, there are people high up on the paper who think we are on the wrong side of history, and there is no public indication that anyone is grappling with that seriously. Worse, Christine writes, as another anonymous journalist complained, management had forgotten the most important thing when running a newsroom, not hurting the newsroom's feelings. Quote, I mean, this is a moment where New York Times employees are feeling profound hurt disagreeing deeply on core issues and it feels like leadership is nowhere to be found except for a threatening letter the staffer said well i mean when you combine that with being told you have to come to work how could you how could how could anyone bear up under that kind of strain holy crocono the i think sean mccreesh actually talked about this but the development of journalism in the place of you know how in wealthy families once upon a time the clergy might have been a job for a third son. You might have a child that went into the family business. You might have a child that went into the military. You might have a child who went into the clergy or academia. And journalism is now a job like that for in a lot of, in a lot of wealthy families. It's a liberal kind of job. It's a helping kind of job. It's an engaged, active kind of job. And it has prestige in it, even if it is not highly remunerated. 
the snowflakeification of people who go to, no offense, super elite colleges and then go to work in super elite newsrooms and their situational awareness for what they really do for a living and what they're supposed to do for a living. You know, I had my old boss, Bill Salmon, up at Georgetown to talk to the kids up there and the same group that you talked to. And the thing that really came home for me was the Bill's advantage of working for the Cleveland Plain Dealer and working for a suburban newspaper before he worked at the Plain Dealer and working his way up in the news business, worked at Stars and Stripes before he became a White House correspondent, really served him well. And I think this kind of balderdash is a good example of that. People need more situational awareness. What do we got next? Ah, Kevin Williamson. Speaking of staying on, staying on beating the New York Times about the head and neck. So here is... Kevin is such a good writer. My dispatch colleague is so good. So here he is. It's a New York Times write-up, and the headline on Kevin's piece is, What New York Housing Shortage? Quote, a a proposal from New York Governor Kathy Hochul, quote, this is the New York Times, a moderate Democrat would simply bring the state's housing policy into the 21st century, building crucially needed housing in the suburbs by slashing Jim Crow-era zoning laws. Oh, that. Kevin writes, by the 21st century policy, Gay, the writer of the piece, means a mandate from Albany that the housing stock of every town in New York must grow by a certain percentage every three years or face having local planning and zoning laws nullified by the state, which will then have a free hand to impose its own development agenda. Quote, the purpose isn't to attack the suburbs, Gay writes, but to help them grow along with the rest of the state. Alert readers will see the problem in that last clause. If you wanted to illustrate with only a few sentences what is wrong with the New York Times style progressivism, you could do worse than the above. The unsupported and, in context, irrelevant assertion that Governor Ho- Hochul is a moderate Democrat, the cynical insinuation of racism, the, insistent that, the insistence that Hochul's so-called moderate plans are being held hostage by atavistic reactionaries who are opposed not to Hochul's program but to the 21st century, and all of that crowned with a neon non sequitur to help them grow along with the rest of the state. And then, as Kevin points out, New York ain't growing. Right. New York is a shrinking state, not a growing state. And it was a, just a good sometimes you can the part to whole fallacy is very common in media criticism. But sometimes you find a, a crystalline, opaline, shimmering example, the effulgency of the idiocy. And here was one. And Kevin nailed it. And you'll like it in the show notes. I saw this come across the transom when when I was traveling. But the Washington Post published an op ed from the Post's former executive editor, Marty Barron, the headline of which was, We want objective judges and doctors. Why not journalists, too? And it is a, a creed de corps mm-hmm. for objectivity in journalism. And Barron writes, clearly writing to the employees of his former, former colleagues, paper. yes, that's right. He says... Objectivity is not neutrality. It is not, on the one hand, on the other hand, journalism. It is not false balance or both sidesism. Sidesism. It is not giving equal weight to opposing arguments when the evidence points overwhelmingly in one direction. It does not suggest that we as journalists should engage in meticulous, thorough research only to surrender to cowardice by failing to report the facts that we've worked so hard to discover. The aim, yada, yada. But he says... It is to ask a lot of questions, realize that your preconceived notions may be wrong, and 
to tort things out. Yes. And he essentially says that, like, too many reporters live in a bubble where they don't question their preconceived notions. And he, he leans on Walter Lippmann in talking about this, and it's, it's a very good piece. And he quotes Lippmann, there is everywhere an increasingly, and Lippmann is in the 1920s, right? I think of Lippmann as a man of the 20s, but, oh, here it is in 1920, duh. There is everywhere an increasingly angry disillusionment about the press, a growing sense of being baffled and misled. He saw an onslaught of news that comes, quote, helter-skelter in inconceivable confusion and a public, quote, protected by no rules of evidence. He feared an environment when people, as he put it, cease to respond to truths and respond simply to opinions. What somebody asserts, not what actually is. The cardinal fact, he said, is the loss of contact with objective information. And he worried that people, quote, believe whatever fits most comfortably with their prepossessions. I wonder... If that sounds familiar to anybody, I wonder if that I wonder if that hits home with anybody out there, because that's where we're living today. And I have written about Live Broken News, soon to be available in paperback at a fine bookseller near you. I have written about the fact of the parallels between the 20s and 30s and today from media disruption and what happens with new technologies and all of that stuff. This is a great piece. And I may not agree with every jot and tittle of it. It's too long is one. Uh, the editor needed an yeah, editor. Yes. But I, I may not agree with every jot and tittle, but I got to say, get with it, people. Stick with the facts. Stick with objectivity in your reporting and don't be a goofball. All right. We are on to our election portion of the podca- of the podcast with the Columbia Journalism Review complaining that the press has not learned how to cover Trump better. I seldom say this, but good for the Columbia Journalism Review. The it, it's a so it's John Alsup writing at the Columbia Journalism Review. Has the press learned to cover Trump better? The past week suggests not, and we've talked about it. Fox, CNN, ma- the mainstream press writ large said we're not going to make the same mistakes again. We're not going to make the same mistakes of giving Donald Trump free airtime. We're not going to do it. We're going to be tougher. We're going to be more calculated, and we're not going to get played again. And I thought, maybe, unless he rates. And if he rates and clicks, you're going to do it. And the this piece chronicles that struggle, and it's, it's brief, and it makes a good point. It's worth reading. And if you watch, particularly with Fox's struggle on this, we're going to we're – gonna, Trump's people are complaining about a soft ban. He's softly banned. And why are they doing this? And the New York Post runs a headline, all this stuff. Well, this week, turn on Sean Hannity for a basically uncritical, gauzy half hour with Donald Trump talking about poor old meatball and what, what, what's the matter with Ron DeSantis and all that stuff. And it's hard. It, making, making that stick was always going to be a long shot, but it's clear that it's going to be harder than they thought. Well, I think that's part of it, the ratings. But the other part of it is, you know, there's a lot of non-TV media, and I'm and I'm going to include TV media in this, including the hate Trump TV media. Yeah, 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 totally. They hate him so much that they can't help their, like, over-the-top, fulminating, out-of-proportion reactions to everything he does. And that, like, drives the coverage of him in so many ways. Like... They're obsessed with every little thing he does, and 
in, in ways that like they're not paying attention to what Mike Pence is doing and what, you know, Mike Pompeo or, or well, Mike Pompeo is doing and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Nikki Haley like, hardest hit. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they they're it's the passionate hatred that's like driving the fulminating coverage. I think the passionate hatred is real. I think I think it is part of it. But I also think how do you not cover the person, right? So you have Donald Trump is running, he would basically say as an incumbent. He's the front runner for the Republican nomination. The press, right, left, center, whatever, came up with a theory of the case this time. Ron DeSantis, Ronnie D was going to take on Donald Trump and the two of them, it, the, the field was going to seize up and you're going to have a head to head battle. And that's what it was going to be. And DeSantis has been fading. Trump has been stronger. And the narrative that many people in my, my part of the business had embraced is, is unraveling. Right. And now the possibility is, look, when you watch the coverage of the Alvin Bragg likely indictment, Donald Trump's mastery of how to create crazy coverage, right? And how can you not co- he's he's inciting violence. He's after January 6th. And I wrote about it. I mean, it's you 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 have to write about it, but you can I think the 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 fundamental problem here is Trump is very good at manipulating the media. The media, as you say, for reasons negative and positive kind of wants to be manipulated by Trump. And there is a market facing part of it. And I don't think that people have figured out how to handle this question. What's up next? Pudding. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Hit it. Hit it, baby. Well, let's hear Piers Morgan interviewing Ronnie D talking to Meatball about the the anonymous allegation from former staffers. I think it was printed in Vanity Fair. If I whoever did it. Sorry, I don't remember about him waiting for a flight at, at Reagan National Airport and hungry and ate pudding out of a snack cup with three fingers. And of course, the oddest part about that, two fingers, you can kind of see why you would do three fingers. That's like a paw. That's like a little badger hand that you're reaching into the pudding cup. That seems like too many fingers. I don't I, I don't understand what that would be. But let's listen to Ronnie D. You do a test. My fingers would not fit. Your finger, you might need a third finger. I don't know. <laughs> but these these paws are not going in. Three fingers are definitely not going in. On that, but let's listen to Piers. Have you ever eaten a chocolate pudding with three fingers? I don't remember ever doing that. <laughs> I'm telling you, maybe when I was a kid. But it's interesting. You know, there's a lot of people when you're when they go at you. Sometimes they have like really good ammunition. Like you're a crook. You did this. You did that. For me, they're talking about pudding. Like, is that really the best <laughs> you got? Okay, bring it on. But now you're not having puddings. No, no, no pudding. Done. No way. It's sugar, man. And the best part here is. The lower third on the screen. Ron, colon, I didn't eat pudding with three fingers. <laughs> I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I did not eat pudding with three. So in the Chiron, that lower third on the monitor, I didn't eat pudding with three fingers. And you think, so Fox was trying to help DeSantis, I think, here. And, and he was trying to help them because he did Piers Morgan's goofball show on their stream over-the-top streaming channel. And this was obviously an effort. This was some back scratching going on here. But when you go and you have to talk about your pudding eating habits, like I guess what I would say is there's just not a ton of advantage in doing these kinds of interviews. The real question for DeSantis, he has tried out a little fighting Trump, right? 
So he's dabbling in some light. Like he took a glancing blow, no pun intended, at Donald Trump over the Stormy Daniels stuff. He then talked to first talking about not knowing about, you know, hush money payments to sex workers. And then he said, do you, I, I want to let you have have your croissant I'm moment. I'm really distracting you. You're, <laughs> you're like Ron DeSantis over I am, here. <laughs> he inspired me. You're attacking the croissant. He inspired me. And I don't even have a napkin to wipe off my buttery fingers. <laughs> that's that's what Ronnie D said as he was getting on that flight yeah. at Reagan. He's like, somebody, I need a, I need a wipe. I need a wipe. But DeSantis took, DeSantis <laughs> took a shot at, at Trump and... Chris Christie was in New Hampshire and basically, I think, said a true thing, which is everybody would like to insulate themselves from attacking Trump. The media wants them to attack Trump. That's how you get coverage. But they all know that you blow yourself up while you're trying to do it. But I got to say, pudding is not the, 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 the pudding gate is not the, is not the issue. The issue for Ron DeSantis and anybody who might beat Trump eventually is you got to be able to take Trump on. And not and not argue with him, but dismissive and like, no, I'm not going to answer questions from this freak and I'm not going to do that. And number two, you got to make a case to the other 60 percent of the Republican Party. Oh, my gosh. By the way, I got to say this piece. Nobody likes Mike Pence in the Atlantic. Okay, first of all, I'm sure I, I get the the snark in the headline. It's a McKay Coppins piece at the Atlantic. I get the snark in the headline. Nobody likes Mike Pence. And we know that some people like Mike Pence. Mike, that you know what their rabbit's name is? Marlon Bundo. I knew that. They wrote a children's book about Marlon so Bundo. Anybody so with, cute. Anybody with a rabbit named Marlon Bundo is not universally despised. Now, Mike Pence. I'm getting that book for my daughter. Mike Pence is not a front runner for the Republican nomination at this point. But here's what the Atlantic did. They went to. Do you know who Sarah? Long, oh my gosh! Do you know? Yeah, who, like the anti-Trump. So do you know who group. Sarah Longwell is? Yes. Okay, so Sarah Longwell was a former Republican consultant who is now a Lincoln Project. Is that right? She's Lincoln Project adjacent. Okay, so Lincoln Project curious. So she did a focus group with voters in to talk about Donald Trump or to talk about Mike Pence, and guess what? Her focus group said they don't like Mike Pence. Now, focus group stuff. Have you ever gotten to watch a focus group? Okay, so I and uh, over only when I worked at Fox and Frank Luntz would do. A focus okay, so group. Luntz, the Luntz panels are a great example. The dials, okay. right? Yeah. So Luntz talks to the panel in the commercial break, right? It's I not like that. it's not like when they leave. It's not like when they go to break. He, they put them in a cone. He's still working the room during the breaks or when they go away. I've been privy to watch focus groups be conducted, and I've also seen the, the results, the transcripts of focus groups after the fact. They're not polls, and they're not like polls. How you administer the group is amazingly significant, right? The interviewer bias here is enormously important. Doing this piece based on what some, if it would be like saying, we got Sean Hannity to interview Sean Hannity interviewed 35 people and none of them like Joe Biden. None of them like Joe Biden. And he asked them, he asked them fair questions. He was just putting it out there. So this was a, you know, Mike Pence is whatever Mike Pence does the using 
political operatives who are opposed to him and the focus groups that they have, I have turned down publishing focus group work for that very reason. It can be useful to me as a journalist to get some ideas, and some people are better than others, but this was not a appropriate use of focus group stuff. Harumph. Oh, this is great. Wow. This was something. We talked about this when it broke. We did? Um, yes, 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 yes. Also, I need to heat up my coffee. Um, shall we? <laughs> well, we'll pause. Okay. All right. We're back with my hot coffee. and You just warmed up gross coffee. It was a real mistake. Chris wants me to throw like three-fourths of a coffee it gets in, at in the, the bottom. I don't in the trash every time, but no. I don't know. I don't um, get it. You you drink coffee like an old man. I don't <laughs> I don't, My mom will literally put saran wrap over her cup of coffee <laughs> to save it for like the end of the day. It's so cute, and she has she has like a special thing. It's like a plastic. It's got a hat. A special, yeah, <laughs> that's a hat. <laughs> yes. And so you know, I'm inspired to save it. Okay, so we were going to talk about the FBI raiding this journalist's home, ABC News's James Gordon Meek, and Rolling Stone reported on this. And now NPR tells us that Rolling Stone editor-in-chief Noah Schachtman left out a few details. So Rolling Stone's article omitted a key fact that their reporter had wanted to include. He had learned from Siegel had learned from her sources that Meek had been raided as part of a federal investigation into images of child sex abuse, something not publicly revealed until last month. But apparently Schachtman stepped into her office to edit the story. And he detailed the seriousness of the allegations against Meek and warned her against turning in a story that included the words child pornography in it. He then changed the draft of the story to remove all suggestions that the investigation was not related to Meek's reporting and left in the finding that federal agents had had allegedly found classified information on Meek's devices. So when we talked about this story, it was basically that FBI agents had raided James Gordon Meek's, ABC News reporter James Gordon Meek's home, and we had no idea why. Yeah. Absolutely no idea. Except for the fact that he reported on on, this big national security secret squirrel stuff. Exactly. Now it turns out that it was on suspicion that he had child pornography in his home. Yeah. So way to go, Rolling Stone. And by the way, way to go NPR for reporting this out and doing that work. That was good on that. Great piece. Now here I have a little bouquet for us. Okay, good. Uh, about, Let me just sit back and take it in. About about feeling facile. You know, b- the facileness, facility in the, in the press is one of my bugaboos. And we have a real, a nice, a nice grouping. Number one, from the New York Times, a translation problem. Americans use Fahrenheit, but many climate reports exclusively use Celsius. The assertion here in the New York Times is that the reason that Americans are not correctly alarmed, adequately alarmed about climate change is that we podunk dummies are using Fahrenheit and not understanding how big a degree in Celsius is. And if only people knew Celsius. So I guess this is please alert Lincoln Chafee that the metric system and, and the and the failure to use centigrade is actually damning the earth. It can't be. That people are like, yeah, I hear you, but I'm not as concerned about this as you want me to be. It has to be, oh, if they only knew, if they only understood, they would agree with us. 
And so I found that to be quite a Lulu, but it gets better. Why stop there? Opinion piece, Washington Post. How to explain the COVID baby boom. Oh, this is good. How, how, how can we explain the COVID baby boom? What could explain the COVID baby boom? Well, it doesn't make any sense because the economy got worse. And usually when the economy gets worse, see, that childbirth rates go down because people are economically insecure and they're not having as many children. But somehow when all of these adult people were locked in their home for months at a time, People had more children. I don't know what happened. Everybody was off work and wearing sweatpants for a year, and somehow more children were born. I I don't know what happened. And the best part is, why the baby bump? I love this. Policy provides one possible answer. Mm, uh Uh-huh. The federal government was more generous than in earlier bouts of economic hardship, offering expanded unemployment benefits, extra-large stimulus checks, and a bigger child tax credit. American families had more financial security than they usually have during economic times. In fact, they had more financial security than they usually have during good economic times, too. Poverty levels after accounting for government programs reached record lows in 2020 and 2021. Holy cannoli. Holy cannoli. If well, I don't know why we don't have lockdowns and government massive government transfer payments all the time. We'd get rid of our declining fertility product problem and everything would be great. This is the kind, and I don't, I, the accusation here is of being facile, but I'm afraid in this case that the author may actually not understand mommy daddy stuff adequately <laughs> to explain to people what happens when everybody's doing Netflix and chill for a year and a half. Well, well, I can speak from experience having had yeah, a baby. Yeah, you did it. You're part of the, yes. Was it government transfer and, payments? And, yeah. <laughs> were, were you and Patrick like, well, we're getting these checks in yeah. here. We might as well we might as well do we might as well do something with it. And having had COVID right before I went to give birth. Yeah. I had like all the COVID babies. You got it done. Yeah. And you still got it done. The Washington Post is very proud of a piece that it did on the AR fifteen rifle. And Oh, my Uh, gosh. Everyone. Tweeting it, pushing it, talking about it. It was their big thing. The 3D animation. So the first part of this report is a 3D animation that shows the trajectory of two different hypothetical gunshots to the chest, one from an AR-15 and another from a, quote, typical handgun. Now, I'm not going to go through and talk about the ballistics tests or whatever else, but I'm going to tell you that there are lots of firearms that do shocking, if you have ever seen a person who has been killed by a firearm, it's terrifying, it's amazing, it's, it's shocking. And, that's, and that could be just a, a nine millimeter or a 40 caliber, or a, certainly a 45. A 38 does astonishing damage. And the premise of this very in-depth, very grisly, Washington Post piece is that the AR-15 is different because it's fetishized by Americans and Americans really like the AR-15, but do they know how devastating it is? I'm here to tell you that if it wasn't the AR-15, it would be another weapon. And the trauma of a gunshot wound is horrifying. I have seen it and it is truly horrifying. And this was, I don't know if it was facile as much as it was tendentious and the animations and all of the stuff on this treating this as a revelation i think it was i think it i think it provided a lot more 
heat than light, and I don't think did anything to make us have a better conversation around firearms. This one was great, which we've talked in the past couple of weeks about the Washington Post had a piece, and then I forget what the second one was, but it's the new mainstream media slash Dem line as what does woke even mean? They don't even know. Uh, they don't even you know, know. All these attacks on woke. And Jeez. actually, it has origins in black culture. Probably and racist it's an atta- for you. Yes. It's probably yeah. racist and for all black people these people to say using it. it and they can't even define it. So you you sent this link from Freddie DeBoer's Substack, the headline of which is. Of course you know what woke means. Subhead, I'd rather use any other term at this point, but can we get real, please? Freddie DeBoer, a man of the left. I don't know whether he describes himself as a progressive or not, but certainly he's not a conservative, and he makes the very, a very strong and convincing case about the foolhardiness. We, while you were away, Pod and I listened to Reverend Al Sharpton talk about it's not woke, it's, it's sleep. If you ain't woke, it's your sleep. And how trying to save and to salvage this term yeah. for the left. And Deborah is like, grow up. Like, grow up. And you, we're, the use of words change. It is the next gen of what even is critical race theory. Exactly. And Same. critical race theory, it's a, it's a, it's a legal theory that's only taught at Stanford Law School. Right. It's not, it's not even inflation. a child's classroom. It's not, yeah. it's not inflation. It's transit. Well, if there is inflation, it's transitory. People don't even know what inflation really is. All right. I didn't want to talk about this, but you did, so you you take it. <laughs> so we've got buy-in from the beginning. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> Ars Technica, how the New York Times managed to avoid ruining Wordle. And do you Wordle? No. Okay. Otherwise, I would have cared about this. I, I'm Wordle. I, I'm a casual Wordle person. I was obsessed with the Times's word game. There's some different Spelling words. Bee. Spelling Bee. Yes, Spelling Bee is great. That, I enjoy um, Spelling Before Bee. I had a kid, and now I, I, like, I stopped paying the five bucks a month. because Jessica's here. My Jessica is here, and she's rolling her eyes internally at <laughs> my con- our conversation about playing online word games, and de- deservedly so. But here is how, the, the, when the New York Times bought Wordle, I was among those who thought this could go, this could go sideways pretty quickly. Here's the, from the piece. The Times also initially decided to remove some, quote, less family-friendly words, not just from the game solution set, but from the list of words that were valid to guess. As it turns out, quote, people like to guess racial slurs and dirty words, as their initial guesses, Bell said. After receiving some irate feedback questioning why the Times was trying to, quote, police our guesses, Bell said the team rever- reverted that change. It's not like players could really use their personal word or wordle, wordle boards to harass other players, she pointed out. If you want to guess that, go ahead. But even that small curatorial change hasn't been without issues. When Bennett started matching the daily Wordle solutions to major events on the calendar, e.g. Feast as the solution for Thanksgiving Day, some players insisted that the new editor was ruining Wordle. Bell said that the team has learned its lesson, that there are no plans for more daily themed solutions going forward. So the New York Times spent a ton of money to buy this product that was very popular. And what was the lesson that they learned? Leave it alone. So when the New York Times buys Ink Stained Wretches and makes us their their dominant media criticism podcast, just remember the lessons of Wordle. Don't change anything. Let Eliana drink gross coffee and it will be fine. (laughs) (laughs) It will never happen.
All right. The California newspaper, is it Salinas? Salinas. Salinas, the Salinas Californian, um, has no reporters left. Yes. Tell us about this. This is a follow-up on what's going on in Gannett and the, the collapse of Gannett and the consequences in local markets. The Salinas Californian has zero reporters now. Zero reporters. This is from the LA Times, the Salinas Californian. Let's see. The paper's last reporter quit to take a job in TV. The departure marked the latest and perhaps final step in the slow motion unwinding of what used to be the principal local news source in a city of 163,000. By last year, the Californian staff had been gutted. As reporters left for other papers or got out of the business altogether, there was no move to replace them. By then, the paper's print circulation, 11,000 on Saturdays a decade ago, had slipped to about 2,500. Salinas is not the first city where Gannett has led a newsroom wither. The weekly Mount Shasta News has no full-time reporters relying on freelancers and a Gannett daily in Reading, one of the chain's editors said. Axios reported in January that the St. Cloud Times in Minnesota, after 93 years of publication, had lost its last reporter. You can do economies of scale. You can do regional coverage. I'm not saying that these things don't exist, but Gannett's failure and the way that Gannett is dying, the slow death of Gannett is killing off. And small town newspapers, Salinas isn't a small town in the sense of maybe St. Cloud, in the sense that Salinas is in a larger metro area. It's near San Jose, all of that stuff. But these local communities get hit very hard because there isn't competition and there's not the economic incentive. So the way that Gannett is dying is having a lot of bad consequences it's for rural America and small towns. Axios is coming in and making the local play. So as be these smart. ones die out, yes, be smart. Other, be smart. You know, the Fourth of July parade else is emerging. These some big national brands are going local. Go deeper. The Fourth of July yes. parade starts at the Volunteer Fire Department at three p.m. <laughs> Exactly. Oh, I was so excited to talk about this. It is time for our style section. Heck yeah. Which I'm so pumped about. The Wall Street Journal writes that the most polarizing men's dress shoe is back. I didn't even know what these were called, but they're like the ones with buckles on the side. Yeah. The, the double monk strap shoe. Double monk strap. It's a real... We'll put the link in so you can see what they look like. You've seen and them. And... The journal writes, double monks are, quote, still a pariah in certain tasteful circles, said Lawrence Schlossman, 35, a menswear podcast host (laughs) and one of the men most responsible for the double monk moment a decade ago. In 2010, Mr. Schlossman, then a much followed blogger writing about, say, Gant's latest collection or whatever Brooks Brothers was up to. What happened to Gant, by the way? I think it's still Uh, out there. Started a company called Run of the Mill with two friends and fellow bloggers, which sold a variety of Italian manufactured double mock shoes. I'm so against the double mock. I want to be careful here because there are some people I like who I have caught wearing double monk shoes. Well, if you like them, you should tell them to change their shoes. I, I'm talking to you wearing suspenders and a polka dot tie. Who I, I feel like I have to be, I have to be self-editing to a certain degree on this. But these are ugly. They're shoes. horrifying. These are ugly shoes. They're overbuckled. They're overdone. I'm. I will just tell you, the two kinds of dress shoes that you need. If there are any any young men out there want to know what kind of dress shoes they need. You need an Oxford shoe. You need a cap toe lace-up shoe, black, cordovan, black or oxblood, great place to start, black first. And then you need a dress loafer. And then you need, if you want to get crazy, then you need a wingtip. 
and then stop. And then stop there. Okay. And you don't need anything weirder than I that. I have a question. My husband does not like a buckle on a loafer. Is Do that- you mean the bit? Yeah, like a metal buckle. Okay, so the bit has become very popular. It's very popular in D.C. I don't like it. I think it's pretentious, and I don't care for it. But they're very, very popular. As you can see, I wear a penny loafer right, like a lame likes. old, like a okay. lame old person. I don't mind the buckle. I think so. They're called bit loafers, and it was originally a Gucci product, and then eventually preppier brands started to adopt the bit, and it's very DC. I don't, I don't get down with the bit. And I think it's an unnecessarily flashy uh, thing for your shoe. Penny loafer is good. So all if you want these, a tassel on your loafer, all crazy. of these that are here, th- these are all bits. Yes, those are bit loafers. Anything with metal. Anything with that little metal. It look. It's okay. supposed to be for the p- purpose of a pony. It's supposed <laughs> to be like a, a horse bit that okay. goes in the mouth. That, okay. It's, it's supposed to be evocative of the sports field of the equestrian world, and it is favored by guys who have $700 lunches in Washington, D.C. and and wear wear vest jackets with them and call each other bro. What's next year? You want to talk about your outfit again? We, I think we hit it at the top. We hit the Gwyneth Chic at the top. She's weird, is what I'll say. Now, I just want to point out that the Associated Press offered a review to the newspaper, the struggling newspapers across the country. AP, will you help us out? Yes, Here's a review of Lana Del Rey's Ocean Boulevard. It is, quote, an intimate epic. AP, I love you. I know you're trying your best out there. But what American markets do not need are you allowing, you having a style section, you having music critics, you doing that stuff. You don't need to do it. You don't need to do it. Please take the resources that you would use to write, Quote, the lengthy 16-song album explores themes of spirituality with religious undertones, featuring gospel singers in The Grants and an interlude with Pastor Judah Smith, the leader of a controversial celebrity megachurch, Church Home. Those, the insights that are taken there, take that and how about cover the news instead of Lana Del Rey? No offense, Lana Del Rey. Oh, this is your, this is your, we, we, this, this is a special moment. All right. The New York Times, showing it can still be useful, publishes the case for sleeping with stuffed animals as an adult and writes, though there is no robust scientific literature on the effect of stuffed animals on adult sleep. I mean, scientists. Get no on robust. It. Get on There's it. scientific Several research, studies have shown that plush companions can help adults self-soothe. <laughs> a 2016 study observed that holding a stuffed animal during group therapy allowed college students to better comfort themselves. The act of, this is so Gen Z, the act of hugging has also been associated with stress relief. And a 2013 study found that interacting with a huggable communication communication device device. lowered stress hormones in blood and saliva. Maybe that's why I reached for that polar bear during a stressful time. I like to think of myself as a huggable communication device. I don't know whether I can get an amen on that from anybody in here, but I do think of myself that way. Wow. I, you, you, picked, you picked a real gem there. Who wrote this? Sarah Gannett. Gannett. Well, Sarah, I got to say. Let's see what it says. She's, she's a wire cutter contributor and former editorial intern. As a child, she received a book titled Knit Your Own Cat. <laughs> Her interests remain largely the same. <laughs> That's what it says. Mwah. Okay. Okay. It is time for our Obsessions of the Week. 
where we break down the stories we can't get out of our heads. Chris, hit it. We got to rock and roll here. We're rocking and rolling. Yep. Okay. So why are people so... Uh, I'm sure you've seen, because I, I know I talked about it 85 times uh, on TV and in other settings, but the surveys from the Wall Street Journal, survey from the Wall Street Journal and the National Opinion Research Center, America pulls back from values at once to find it. WSJ NORC poll. By the way, if you're writing a headline, don't put the words WSJ NORC poll in your headline. America pulls back from values at once to find it. And you've probably all seen it. It's We'll link to it. It's scary charts. Everything falling off the cliff, patriotism, religion, having children, community involvement. The only line that goes up in terms of what Americans value, according to this survey, which is a good and well-conducted survey, is money. And correctly to some degree, but probably in an overstated fashion, people talked about what this means and America's falling apart and we're not ourselves anymore and all of that stuff. I will point you to a tweet that I was pointed to by the aforementioned Jessica. The rise of negative media. Since 20, this is George Mack on Twitter. Since 2010, the media massively increased headlines that use fear, anger, disgust, and sadness. And when you look at the charts, and I hope you go and look at the charts, it is, the, the, the numbers are crazy cakes, right? About the words associated with anger, disgust, and fear, and sadness are through the roof. Numbers related to joy, and even neutral headline writing are way down. We've talked before about why that's true and why the business model in a fragmented space prizes emotional connection and habituation over information. And we know all of that and it's true, but we forget that it has downstream consequences for the society. Here's Mac. Why has the media become more negative? Blended study of 105,000 headlines and 370 million impressions concludes, quote, each additional negative word in a headline increase the click-through rate by 2.3%. And in a market this competitive, 2.3% is makes a difference. And people, and, and that's the problem. And that's why. So it's not, I'm not trying to say that it's the media's fault. But I am saying that it, media is part of the cause and the hyper focus on what's wrong with everything and the hyper focus on tearing this stuff down for that extra 2.3% is part of why people are so disillusioned and is part of why, and that wasn't, social media is part of that story, but that's a media story, right? That's about the news business and about what we're doing and why it's irresponsible to exploit those feelings in order to uh, get that extra 2.3%. Mine is, much, well, it's a little bit lighthearted, but, <laughs> but, but mine is that PBS oh my gosh. put up a one hour and 50 minute long documentary about Anthony Fauci. I can't believe and that this is true. it is because Anthony Fauci let a camera crew follow him around for two years, starting in January, 2021. And this documentary is just Fauci in the raw, basically Ugh. in his house. And it is amazing, amazing. And the beacon Andrew Stiles and Thalea Ramprasad at the Beacon pulled out the 17 peak moments from this documentary. The guy is such an amazing narcissist. He is the hero of his own story and surrounded in his home office, in his NIH office, surrounded by memorabilia of himself. Pillows, stuffed animals, caric you know, drawings. And 
you you really have to see it. He also cries and claps watching the Biden inauguration. He kisses his wife when they're both wearing masks well, in their house, in their own house. Well, it's it's amazing. <laughs> it's it is amazing. And so we have a little video up at the beacon that condenses the top moments from this documentary. But everyone should watch it because and come to their own conclusions. Do you, do about you remember it. when early early days, Fauci agreed to a photo shoot with I believe it was Hollywood Reporter. Do you remember this? He's like in a glamour. They did. They were trying to be serious and as the they were trying to figure out how to do the pan. Yeah, and he was seated by a pool like he was a movie star, or something. And I and I remember when that happened. I was like, uh oh, somebody's getting high on their own supply, and. Fauci really lost the thread about how useful he was. And as a matter of fact, he became such a, he was unfairly treated, no doubt, by Matt Gates or whomever and lots of vilification. But he was way more of a hindrance than a help by the end. And a lot of that had to do with his need for attention. I mean, also, what would make him think starting in January 2021 that this is a good use of his time? Yeah. Spending days on end with a documentary crew? Woof. All right, Chris. Up next is my favorite time of the week, which is our reader mail. And we got a wonderful invitation. Yes, good news for us. Right, Addressing us us as Darwin. Yes. And telling us, Darwin, you've got tickets. To what? A free tour of the Scientology Celebrity Center. Hey, you're already dressed like one. Yes, we were awarded seven tickets (laughs) for... An eight-hour tour, two wow. to ten You're, in L.A. Your thetans are going to be super. Does clear. not say whether airfare is included because this is in Los Angeles. Well, if but, you're willing to stay for the whole eight hours, they'll probably get you out there. They probably have a jet. But we're pretty lucky. Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise, hook us up. Tell us, tell us what's going on. All right, Chris, what's your favorite item of the week? My favorite item of the week is from Semaphore. And I love this kind of stuff, this kind of silly stuff. J.B. Capoletto, writing for Semaphore, how to spend three months vacationing in Florida, like Jar Bol- Bolsonaro, former Brazil- former and potentially future Brazilian strongman, and his three, and the subhead Florida man is leaving Florida. And they just chronicle how Bolsonaro, who's in this really weird situation, moved to Florida, he's going to CPAC, he's going to Turning Point USA, He's a hero of sort of the nationalist right here, but he wants to be back in Brazil. And how did he do it? And one of the best moments here is a picture of him eating KFC. <laughs> Here's the, the picture. Bolsonaro eating KFC in Florida on the day his opponent took office in Brazil. And Bolsonaro is getting after it, which I admire. But it's just a, a silly, funny, interesting, you know, dictators. They're just like us. My favorite item of the week was this amazing piece by Jean or Jeannie Suck Gerson in The New Yorker headlined The Secret Joke at the Heart of the Harvard Affirmative Action Case. And it is about a memo that the... A mock memo? A mock memo that a circuit court judge kept out of public view. This case is now has already been heard by the Supreme Court, but this memo was shielded from public view and she got her hands on it. And so she writes that according to Judge Burroughs, who was the circuit court judge, the joke, this is a joke memo written by Harvard officials 
took the form of a mock memo from the Harvard admissions office, referenced certain Asian stereotypes and included anti-Asian remarks. Judge Burroughs said that she would keep sealed the exact words of the federal officials joke memo, taking into account the privacy interest of the gentleman who wrote and sent it. And Gerson writes, I eventually obtained the joke memo and the surrounding emails, and what I read didn't strike me as having been worth the fight to keep them secret. But the fight itself showed that both Harvard and the court expect the public to operate on trust that their decisions are not biased, an expectation that is all the more troubling as the Supreme Court's likely ban on using race in admissions will drive the consideration of race further underground. And the memo is, we'll link the New Yorker article, but... It employs a ton of anti-Asian stereotypes in a mocking way. It's it's astonishing, and they're joking about doing it. Oh, boy. And the judge kept this out of view. The judge is an Obama-appointee judge who's obviously sympathetic to Harvard's case, ruled in their favor, and and this was heard on appeal at the Supreme Court. So she concludes... This raises complicated questions about how we define racial discrimination. If white applicants are implicitly favored over Asian ones, is it right to place the blame for that on race-conscious affirmative action? Or does that instead suggest that an even more transparent consideration of race for underrepresented minorities could help reduce the risk of hidden discrimination against racial minorities who are overrepresented? Oddly, though, instead of confronting these questions, a federal judge in open court told me that I was greedy for seeking public access to court proceedings. Um, she sought this. There you go. So great piece. I highly recommend reading it and takes on really interesting and complicated questions. I am certain that all seven or all nine, excuse me, Supreme Court justices will have read this piece. I bet that's right. Every single one. So for right. anybody interested in how the court will rule, rule on this, you should read this piece. There you go. Really great piece of reporting. That is all the time we have left for the news about the news. If you have a story that you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media, produced by Colin Chicola. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.